0: You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette. And because they know what a pleasure it is to smoke a mild, good-tasting cigarette, they're particular about the brand they choose. In a repeated national survey, doctors in all branches of medicine Doctors in all parts of the country were asked, what cigarette do you smoke, doctor? Once again, the brand named most was Camel. Yes, according to this repeated nationwide survey, more doctors smoke Camels than any other cigarette. Why not change to Camels for the next 30 days and see what a difference it makes in your smoking enjoyment. See how Camels agree with your throat. See how mild and good tasting a cigarette can be.
1: Well, good morning, and uh, now that we've had a word from our sponsors, uh, we, can, <laughs> we can begin. Uh, well, my name is Bobby, and uh, I normally get to do music here, and every once in a while uh, I uh, get to teach, and it's definitely uh, fun and, and a fun and a privilege and nerve-wracking and all of that. Uh, Troy is at his daughter's graduation, and so he'll be back next week. Uh, and we're continuing in our series, Fan to Follower. Now, it's so interesting how watching this ad from the 50s it makes us feel uncomfortable when we watch that because of where we are in our society and culture we're way down over here Where it's just assumed and it's known and and I, I mean no no shame to those of you that smoke But I don't think it's any surprise that it's known that those will kill you I mean it's known that those are harmful and it's bad and yet back then in that day There was massive advertising campaigns, and using doctors and all that to really say, hey, this is the way to go. And there was, when I was looking up these ads, there was a lot. There was this one that was from 1930 that had this Dr. Reynolds that said, you know, so-and-so brand of cigars and cigarettes is known to help alleviate some of the common ailments of asthma and, you know, (laughs) Some of these other things, and the, and the website actually had this like little tag at the bottom that like little asterisk that said like, Dr. Reynolds died of lung cancer in 1938. <laughs> <laughs> so, and again, not to make light of it and not to uh, bring shame on anybody that smokes, but I think that what happens is uh, something that was introduced to what was accepted in the culture, uh, it probably took a little while for that to take root, to become now a new norm is accepted, meaning we now know, yeah, cigarettes are bad. But when that first was introduced, there was probably some doctors that started to go, actually, this, this is probably more, more harmful than good. And then more doc- doctors started to say that. And, and people probably at the time would probably be like, ah, those doctors, they don't know anything. It's fine. It's good. And so there was this tension and there's this period of time where this way of thinking had to evolve and develop. And so what was first endorsed by a doctor, now I don't think you could find any medical profession in professional in any field that would give a big thumbs up to smoking because it's just commonly known now and accepted. That's harmful. It's not good, it's harmful. I think sometimes we approach uh, some of the stories in the Bible with that same attitude and sentiment. Meaning we're so far down on this side of things that we lose perspective of what it must have been like to have this, this new thought introduced into the culture and how it probably created some tension and it probably created some people kind of going like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, wait. no, 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 this is, this is right. Jesus' message was probably pretty uh, contradictory and created tension in people because he was bringing about a new way, a new way to think, a new way to look at life, pointing his finger at things that were harmful and saying, you know, this thing that you've been doing, it's killing you, but there's a new way. So that sets up kind of a little bit what we're going to be talking about. If uh, you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew 23. If you need a Bible, we have some on the racks, kind of on the walls over here. Feel free to get up and go get one yourself, or you can raise your hand and somebody will be happy to to get you one. But we're going to be looking at a pretty large chunk of Scripture, and in line with this whole series of moving from fan to follower, again, a fan is this enthusiastic devotee to something as a spectator, versus somebody that is living what they believe. In Proverbs it says, Wounds inflicted by the correction of a friend prove he is faithful. The abundant kisses of an enemy shows, shows his lies. I know that I've had some people that care about me really deeply, that have used some pretty strong language aimed in my direction to raise my tension enough that I might be able to see things a little bit differently. And I know that I've had strong language towards people that I care about really deeply in order to bring about some new way of thinking. And this is what we see in Matthew 23. And so let's dive right in. And again, if you're following along, I encourage you to do so. Right away, a warning against hypocrisy. All right, nice light topic this morning. Aren't you glad you showed up today? Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Now, mind you, he's talking to his people. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the crowds that are coming to hear from Jesus. And he says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. So he's saying the stuff that they're about is good. This is God's law. This is what has been passed down so that you might have right relationship with God. But don't do what they do because they don't practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I love the way the message says it. It says, do you want to stand out and step down? Be a servant. If you puff yourself up, you'll get the wind knocked out of you, but if you're content to simply be yourself, your life will count for plenty. So... Let's, let's set the stage here a little bit. This time frame that Jesus is saying this message, warning his followers about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. This is, in, in, the, in Jewish history, this was at the height of Jewish religious zealot behavior. This was kind of at the height of them, when he talks about their phylacteries are wide and their tassels are long a a phylactery was this box that had scripture inside of it they would have scripture of the torah and had this leather band that would they'd wrap around their arm because in exodus it says you'll bind my word to your arm and so they took that very literally and they'd have this box on their arm and it says and it would be on the forefront of your mind language may not be exactly like that but that's basically what it says in exodus and so they would do the same thing where they'd have this like like, you know, like, like a miner's light kind of thing with this box right here that had uh, verses from the Torah in it. But what they started to do is they started to be, make a big deal about the box. Make a big deal about the adornment. They weren't, it wasn't much about the words that were being said. The boxes started getting bigger. The leather started to become more fine. They wore these prayer shawls that had tassels. And so they made the tassels really big so that everybody knew, oh, he's, a, you know, he's taking on the posture of somebody that prays. And so they started to shift their attention to the wrong things. And so Jesus, immediately, he attacks the why. He says, hey, I am all for seeking out God and doing things that are going to uh, get to know him more. And so the position that they've taken is, is a right one. But what they're doing... They've lost the why. They've lost the motive. And they're hurting you. And it's harmful. So this thing that is now, again, this is at the height of this zealous behavior. Everything that they knew to be as normal in the, in the tradition and, the, and in the culture. Jesus is now starting to say, like, hey, this stuff that you're doing is killing you. And there had to have been some tension, just like that cigarette ad. Where there's some people kind of going like, but this is this is this is all we know. What do you mean this is hurting? It's easy for us on this side of it to go, oh yeah, 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 those Pharisees, oh yeah, the Pharisees, those guys, those are the villains. And I know that I've I've always taken on this posture to really see Jesus in this passage being this hero, this like, you know, muscle-ridden hero. Because as we get into the next uh Uh, I'll I'll explain what I mean here. When we get into the next part, he, it's almost like he was talking to, and I don't know what the proximity was like, I don't know what it looked like, but the way the text reads, it's literally as if he just turned around and started talking to somebody else. It's like he's talking to his followers. He's saying like, hey, just so you know, that the stuff that the religious leaders are teaching is killing you, and so there's a a new way. So don't do what they do. We're gonna talk about something new. And it's it's almost as if he just turned right around, and now he's talking to the religious leaders. It's that fast where he's like woe to you religious leaders and this is where i've taken on this like image of jesus as this like muscle-bound hero and the villainous evil hypocritical pharisees are on the receiving end of his heroic wrath where he's like raising this finger and taking on this posture and he says woe to you and all of his followers that can't defend themselves against tyranny are going, Yeah, you tell them, Jesus, go get them. <laughs> but there's a problem here. You, I mean, if you could show me anywhere, anywhere, I, I challenge you to do it anywhere in Scripture where Jesus takes that approach to the unlovable, the unlikely, the enemies. It's not there. Jesus says you've got to love your enemy, serve the unlikely, love the unlovable, sit in the house at the dinner table with tax collectors and sinners. And so it's almost like there's this inconsistent picture that we see when Jesus now starts to approach the Pharisees. And I truly believe that it's because there is a double message in his language. Much like the people that have loved me well enough to use some pretty strong language with me. I think Jesus is using some pretty strong language. And he begins with this word, woe. And we're going to see it seven times. Woe, according to dictionary.com, says it's a grievous distress. Affliction or trouble, his woe was almost beyond description. In affliction, she suffered a fall among her other woes. And this is the one that was interesting to me. An exclamation of grief, distress, or lamentation. There is more sadness woven into the word woe than there is heroic anger of I'm going to get you and you're going to get your comeuppance one day yet I always wanted to read it the other way. So let's, we're going to dissect this. We've got a lot to go through, so I'd encourage you to, again, follow along. I'd encourage you to take notes because I think we're going to hear this whole passage differently. Because he's saying, woe to who? I know it's supposed to be whom, but it doesn't, flow is nicely. <laughs> <laughs> Woe to who? Who is he really talking to here? Is it an us and them? Are we so removed from this wayward thinking of the Pharisees that we can only see it from the outside saying he's talking to them? Or do we have to be vulnerable enough to slip ourselves onto the receiving end of what Jesus is talking about here? There's seven woes. Seven times does he begin a paragraph with woe to you. And his language was strong, even abrasive, because this was not a soft sell. This was an indoctrination in a culture that had bought this practice, bought this religious zealous way, hook, line, and sinker. A whole nation was duped. And so approaching this with just a, hey, guys, let's let's gather around. Let's just love each other more, and we'll see the hand of God. That wasn't going to work. He had to be able to, again, raise the tension, use some of this abrasive uh, language, in order to see revolution and revelation and restoration happen. So woe number one, Jesus who? You see, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces and you yourself do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. You see, a fan can be a fan of God and reject Jesus. And this is what the Pharisees had been doing. They had been saying, like, hey, we are the ambassadors of God's word. We sit in the seat of Moses. We are teaching to the people the way of God. But Jesus, no, that's not right. And so Jesus says, like, well, uh, you're, you're saying you're following God, but you're rejecting the only way to get to heaven. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one enters the kingdom except through me. And the Pharisees are saying, no. So he's saying, you're you're pointing people in the wrong way. If he's the only way to heaven, then there's only one other alternative. And right now you're pointing people that way. And that, and this is Jesus speaking, and that makes me sad and angry. Because it's not right. And woe number two, what brand of Christianity now, that might sound very uh, weird, but let me, let me explain. I, I once heard a, um, a pastor uh, teach, and he was um, a former pastor. Uh, he had planted a church in Tennessee. He had grown this church plant to over 4,000 people. Success, right? Only to ultimately end in his own moral failure. And as he was in his own restoration process, he had to look back on his success, and he had to honestly, and with a broken heart, answer the question to say, there was 4,000 people, but what kind of Christian was I creating? What kind of follower was I creating? Because I was creating fans. I wasn't creating followers. And the his own tension in his own life ended up uh, breaking him. Because here he says, "You, you teachers, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you've succeeded, you've just brought somebody else. You know, he uses strong language. Make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Ouch. Jeez. But he's basically saying, like, you're celebrating that you have somebody that's following you, but you're going the wrong way. And again, that makes me sad and angry. Whoa, well, number three, practice. Okay, so I'm going to need some help with this one. I need some help from my friend Alan Iverson here.
0: We sitting in here. i supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. Well, Coach, I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. Not a game. Not, a, not, a, not the game that I go out there and, and die for and play every game like it's my last. Not the game. We're talking about practice, man. I mean, how silly is that, man? We're talking about practice. I know I'm supposed to be there. I know I'm supposed to lead by example. I know that. And I'm not, I'm not shoving it aside, you know, like it don't mean anything. I know it's important. I do. I honestly do. But we talking about practice, man. What are we talking about? Practice? We talking about practice, man. (laughs) We talking about practice.
1: (laughs) So that labeled Allen Iverson. If you remember that, this was right after they lost the NBA finals. And uh, people were labeling him as not a team player, as arrogant, as a prima donna. He doesn't care about practice. He's all about him. I mean, they really ran with this press conference. Uh, if you want a really a fascinating, uh, and I, I like basketball, so it's really fascinating to me, but it, there's a documentary on Netflix just called Iverson, and you kind of get more of his backstory. Because what, what you don't see is the, the, the rest of the story. And, and that's why his agitation kept growing in this. He says, there is so much more going on then, than, than whether or not I attended practice. And you heard him say, like, I'm not saying practice is bad. That's an important part. But there's a way bigger story. And all, there had gotten, uh, Larry Brown had mentioned something, his coach, about him missing practice. And so all of these news media kept asking him about, why weren't you at practice? Why weren't you there? And that's what finally made him crack. And what really uh, made this an interesting clip is when you understand the backstory of what was going on in his life around there, A couple days before this game, this NBA Finals game that they played and lost, uh, one of his childhood friends, one of his closest childhood friends from Virginia was violently murdered. And at the end of this clip, he says, and this is the part that doesn't get played on the TV. All they show is this. All you ever see is him just complaining about, you know, complaining about practice. But at the end of the clip, you hear him say, step into my shoes my best friend is dead and we just lost I have to deal with this all summer so you all have a good life and he gets up and he walks out because he he is just in so much pain over everything else that's going on that it is incredulous to him that people would be spending so much time about whether or not practice happened isn't wasn't commuting to computing to him and so he got this label, and I think that this was a helpful thing in uh, in, in this next woe, because this was this one was confusing to me at first. You, there's this long thing: if you swear by the temple, it means nothing, and if you swear by the gold on the temple, then you're bound by that. You know, you're blind, or if you swear by what's on the altar versus the blood on the altar. And so it's, it's this kind of confusing thing. But basically what Jesus is getting at is saying you are spending so much time focusing on the little things about how things are being done that you're forgetting the why. Again, that's what a fan does. You know, That's an armchair quarterback that's going to sit back there and say like, oh, Aaron Rodgers, I could have done that better. In our context... It'd be as if, and this happens, I'm not saying it happens here, but this definitely happens in, in church culture, where there, people will, will complain and leave churches because they sprinkled versus dunked people. And it's as, as if Jesus is kind of looking at them, and saying, like, You're complaining over whether it's sprinkled or dunked, but do you see the line of people that are trying to declare their faith publicly in Jesus? Do you see that? But you're willing to leave over how it's done, or it's like we go to communion every week, and it's like, well, th- they use uh, grape juice instead of real wine, and the Bible it used real wine, and uh, that's uh, that's not gluten-free bread, and so I can't, you know, whatever. <laughs> and, <coughs> and it sounds silly, but it's Jesus is saying we're we're getting so hung up over those things, but and not taking into account that people are lining up to remember the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus that gives them hope of eternity. How they do that, don't get hung up on those things. Don't leave churches over those things. That's not what's important. We're, you know, we're talking about bread, bread. We're not talking about salvation, we're talking about bread to quote Alan Iverson, if he was <laughs> helping us this morning. <laughs> so, woe number four, getting back to the fundamentals. You see, the, the Pharisees of the time were, they would be, they, they could like do a class on Excel spreadsheets. They were really good at marking everything that they did, how much, when it was given, what time of day, What was specifics of the things that they gave uh, and and what they're going to be used for and why and all that. And so Jesus is saying, great, good for you. You've got great records. And that's awesome. I'm glad you did that. But what about the heart? Those things aren't bad. But if that's what you're banking on, as far as what's declaring you to be a follower, then you're missing it. Because the mark of a follower of Jesus is a heart that's being transformed. So he says, where's the compassion? Where's the justice? Where's the mercy? Where's the grace? Where's the gentleness? Where's the kindness? Where's the self-control? Where's the humility? Those are the things That God is looking at as a transformed heart, as somebody that's pursuing him and following him. Not whether or not they recorded how much and how often they gave whatever this tangible thing might be. that's, That's what a fan does. A fan keeps really good stats. A follower is being transformed. Who's the real victim here? You see, he says, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. And this is where I really feel like we start to see Jesus' tone change. He's still using strong language. He's still calling them hypocrites. He's still pretty amped up at this point. But I... I can't help but feel there's a, a shift in his tone where he says, guys, you're hurting yourself. I can see right through that fake smile, and I can see your hurt. Who hurt you? Who made you believe that you have to hide? You see, fans believe that they can perform enough good works, they can will themselves into right standing, they can prove themselves by their appearances that they are worthy to be loved and accepted. Followers are honest about their own brokenness, and they seek help. And he goes on, to say, you're not fooling anybody. So not only are you hurting yourself and lying to yourself, believing the lie that was handed to you, I don't know from where, but you're like a, a whitewashed tomb and, and the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So not only are you hurting yourself, but other people are affected by this too so you you might be that person that shows up every sunday that attends a bible study that is you know serving saturday serve and whatever other opportunity might be there you've attended fpu you've done all the right things and kept a log of the sundays that you've uh, attended there's notes for every message and yet people around you are looking at you saying but you're Your marriage is falling apart and your your kids hate you. There's something more going on than just making sure that you've attended. You're you're not fooling anybody by persisting in doing these things and trying to say that that's gonna make it better. We can see it. You're hurting yourself and you're hurting others. And in the seventh woe, here he, he acknowledges generational sin. And he says, you, you build tombs for prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And so you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and complete what your ancestors started. It's as if Jesus is saying, I get it, guys. You were handed a crummy bill of goods. This was passed down to you by your fathers, by your grandfathers, by your great-grandfathers and beyond. That this snowball effect of veering away from following God into becoming a fan of God has been handed down to you. And you bought the lie. And you're living in that lie. I get it. That stinks. And that makes me sad and that makes me angry. But what really hurts is that you keep saying like, well, we won't do what they did, but you're doing the same thing. I mean, that's the very definition of insanity, where you keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. So he's saying, you're gonna reap what you sow, so finish what you started, here I am. He almost invites them to take his own life. Finish what your ancestors started. So we have been handed down an incomplete and an imperfect way of thinking. No matter what your church background is, no matter what your story might be, it's not the full picture. There's opportunity to change what has been passed down to you. And again, you can hear Jesus saying, that makes me sad and angry he finishes off his exhortation to the teachers of the law, still using strong language. He says, how, I don't know how you're going to get out of this because you're pretty steeped in it. And we've sent prophets before that you continue to kill. And so you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to see this way of thinking come to fruition in your own children if you don't make change now. And here's where it changes. It's almost as if you can see Jesus. So again, he started by talking to his followers. Hey guys, everything they're teaching is wrong. He turns to the religious leaders. Guys, what you're teaching is killing people. And then it's almost as if he takes a step back and just extends his arms for everybody. He just takes on, he he addresses all of Jerusalem. Fans and followers alike. So Jerusalem you who have rejected the prophets and killed them how i've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing so in the midst of all of this strong language of all of this finger pointing of all of this you hypocrites you brutal vipers you snakes like all this tough stuff he says i've longed to come alongside you I'm not trying to just kick you to the curb. I'm saying there's another way. It doesn't have to be like this. But you've got to meet me here. You've got to be willing to take that step towards me and stop moving away from me. Because that's what fans do. They will blindly keep on wa- wandering away, believing the lie. Where his followers will enter in. So are you willing? Am I willing? Are we willing to let him come alongside us? To reveal to us this new way? To change the way that we've believed for so long, that tension that rises in us to say, but I'm scared. Now we're going to trust because a follower will trust God. And our response to this is an invitation. In every single one of these woes, these challenges that Jesus gave, there's a, a hidden invitation that we get to respond to today and every day. In the first woe, he says, who do you say that I am? Because you can't follow God and reject Jesus. So it's an invitation to relationship, an invitation to turn towards Jesus. An invitation to be known by him and for you to know him. The second invitation in response to what brand of Christianity are we buying into and encouraging others into. We're invited to release. We are invited to stop pretending. We're invited to to say it's okay that you don't have your Sunday best on today. And that your life is a little bit of a mess. And the worst thing you can do is Tend like it's not And put on a show So we're invited to release that And just let go of the oppression Let go of the burdensome load That he was talking about That the Pharisees were putting on people Release it We're invited to reveal You see, when Alan Iverson was Pointing out the the error in the thinking of what is so important we're invited to say let's be honest about what's really going on let's be honest about the things that are hurting us let's be honest about the things that we're hurting others with so we're invited to reveal these things and then we're invited to receive because again getting back to the fundamentals of what does it mean to be a follower a follower is marked by transformation and that transformation is not something that we can manufacture in and of ourselves. That a follower is going to be changed by God, not change themselves in order to be likable by God. We're invited to receive compassion. We're invited to receive a new heart that sees the world differently, that sees God differently, that sees ourselves differently with compassion, with justice, with grace, with mercy, with forgiveness. We're invited to review in in response to who's the real victim. Jesus is saying, I can see that you're hurting yourself. We're invited to confess. We're invited to make known these strategies and tools that we've used in order to try to create connection and relationship with others and God and to say, these don't work, I need help. So we're invited to review these things. And we're invited to reconnect because not only are we hurting ourselves with those strategies and those tools, We're hurting others. We're disconnecting from others. So we're invited to reconnect and to say, I am sorry for approaching this relationship this way. I am sorry for hurting you. And with God's help, can we do this again? Can we start this over? Can we reconnect? And lastly, we are invited to respond because the generational sin that has been passed down to you does not have to continue. It does not have to be the end of the story that this is just the way it is. My father, my great-grandfather abused my father, my father abused me, and that's just how things go. It doesn't have to be like that. We're invited to respond to all of these things. We're invited to respond to all of these invitations to say the pattern of sin stops here. Pattern of sin stops in my generation so that my kid's generation is not continuing the lie. Now I don't know where you may be at in your journey And maybe I'm really presumptuous in thinking this, but my guess is that one or two of these made your heart beat a little bit faster than the others. And I would encourage you to lean into that, to not push that aside, because I think that is an important part of what's happening in this unique moment today. That that invitation that made you feel something a little bit more is probably the very thing that you need to let go of. It's probably the very thing that's putting you in the camp of a fan instead of a follower, that you need to be able to go to the cross, surrender that, release that, to be honest, to confess it, to bring others in on your journey, to reconnect with them, and to change the pattern. And so as we go to, to response and communion, to remember the work that Jesus has done on the cross, I would encourage you to bring with you your response to, to one or all of these invitations. Pray with people, uh, be honest, and uh, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll respond at the table. <clears throat> God, thank you that you are so persistent in pursuing us. That you are willing and loving enough to raise the tension so that we might be able to see things differently. God, I pray that we would be people that are moving from being fans to being followers. That our lives would be marked by transformation that is driven by you and your spirit. That the world would see and know that the compassion and the uh, forgiveness and the grace that we put on display is not in and of ourselves, but your hand at work. So let us respond to your invitation right now, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.